belated St. Patrick's Day, although we're in between the actual day, the actual holiday, parade day. So I think it still counts as like it's St. Patrick's Day today. It's like I a, think it's safe for us to just do a three or four day holiday. I think that's know, depending on the year. I don't think anybody would really complain. In fact, you might even go as like eight days because there was a parade last weekend too. Yeah. So uh, it never stops. I mean, St. Christmas Patrick's gets day. like four months. So. Yeah, exactly. It's St. Patrick's season right about now. So uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, and uh, quick tip on green beer. Yeah. <laughs> we do talk about this once every year. Yeah. Add a little. One drop. <laughs> one drop. For one a keg. drop will do it. And, uh, like, yeah, a keg or even in uh, one pitcher, one drop. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people with black beer and it's not a stout. No, it is not. And, uh, yeah, that's a mistake you'll, you'll, you'll make once. Yeah. All right. So, anyway, what? Don't put much in. Doing the green beer at all or doing the um, – I would say over-greening it is yeah, a one-time – make once, okay. Yeah, a one-time mistake. All right, Jeremy White, Bert Deister here on uh, Niagara Traditions Just Brew It on ESPN 1520. We're going to get to a bunch of things today, how to uh, clear up your beer, clarifying your beer and all that. Uh, but we've been mentioning a few times the Hop Rhizome pre-order and where things stand for that. So what is uh, – what's the timeline? What's the latest with that? So we what, and, does, got- and, and does this storm – from this week, is that good or bad news? Does it change anything? Um, it, not for the good. I can tell you that much. I don't think it's really going to affect many of the, uh, you know, the hop growers as far as like regionally or anything like that. Fruit harvest regionally is going to, you know, be you know worrisome. You've seen a lot of buds on trees and stuff like that because of our warm spell, and you worry that with the high wind, all the snow, the freezing over the past two weekends, it might knock those buds off. Um, the tree won't regrow them all. So this is how you really knock out an apple harvest or, you know, peaches. Uh, as far as, you know, it's, it's obviously screwing up shipping logistics, you know, quite a bit. Um, but I don't see it affecting the overall time of harvest. So okay. I think we'll be getting them in in a couple of weeks. And if you're looking for a particular variety, I will always encourage you to pre-order. You can do that online or in store. And that way when we get the rhizomes in, it's first come, first serve. We'll put your name on the rhizomes you want. Okay. So order now to make sure you get the variety you want. We're also uh, approaching a little over a month to the Uniha deadline for the mm-hmm. United New York Homebrewers Association deadline. Yes. And so – this is a point where it starts to get a little dicey. You know what I mean? We, we've been saying, oh, like, you know, with AWOG and now with Uniha, oh, it's a month away. Now you're starting to see, like, style limitations. So if you really want to get your beers in for Uniha, uh, if you don't have them brewed already, you better get them brewed. If you have any beers that weren't quite ready or you didn't think they were going to condition in time for AWOG, get them in for Uniha. All right. Um so last week we talked Oktoberfests, uh, lager yeasts and lagering, and first wort hopping. I actually had a couple people uh, respond to that about our first wort hopping uh, segment. Said that he did it all the time. I think he did it on all of his brown ales. Mm-hmm. That first wort hopping was something that uh, he liked to do quite a bit. So uh, if you want to listen to that, you can find that on demand at our website at ESPN1520 on first wort hopping, what you can get out of that. I'm not sure if you've got any reaction or want to share anything in addition to that. A lot of people were surprised. I think they had the same assumption as a lot of brewers. You're putting something in before the 60-minute mark. It's going to show up in the bittering only. Um, And I think a lot of people are going to kind of playing around with the recipes that they use it with now, now that you know a little bit ends up in the aroma as well. Um, So, no, we get a lot of people kind of reacting with, oh, I didn't know that. And they were talking about the same thing. I I did it to my Pilsner. I like the effect Mm -hmm. of it. 
I didn't do it for many other beers. Uh, and a lot of people saying the same thing. No, I did it for, you know, I do it for this one recipe or this one style. And I always felt like it had an edge. So maybe first word hopping is going to be the kind of thing now. Mm-hmm. All right, we want to get to clarifying beer, but also tips for brewing in cold weather. Where do you want to start? You got it. Maybe we should have started this last week <laughs> is where we should have been talking about it. Um, but I brewed in the, the cold weather, and uh, as soon as I came inside, uh, there was, and check Twitter, there was a couple of, uh, let's say, shortcuts I could have taken that I saw other brewers taking online when brewing in the storm. Um, the first one, which uh, probably had me the most frustrated, uh, and I can credit Salton's a swig for this, when you're chilling your wort or when you're heating up to a boil, it may be a good idea to put your brew pot and your thermometer in a place where you can see it from inside. That would have saved me, you know, probably 8 to 12 trips outside, you know, a couple of days ago. So if you're if you're going to brew in the cold weather, think about putting your thermometer. If you have a remote thermometer, bring it inside. That way when you're heating up to a boil, when you're chilling down, you can be inside warming up. Uh, that would have been some great advice. I wish I had looked at that before I started brewing. The other thing you can do is make yourself a windbreak. Uh, I've done this before. You take a, you know, four by eight sheet of plywood, cut it straight down the middle so you have two four by four squares, connect them with a 90 degree angle with a you know, piece of two by four, and you have a nice little windbreak, kind of similar to what you see ice fishermen use, uh, or if you see set up around manholes and construction time, you're just trying to provide a little bit of a windbreak from not only you, but also for the burner. So a lot of that heat that you're creating doesn't just get pulled right away. Um, and the last one we can kind of talk about is don't put the beer in the snow. This is a common thing we see is people put the beer in the snow, the snow is cold, let me get a lot of contact, and that's not what you get. What happens is it ends up, you know, melting just a little bit of snow around it, and that snow then acts like a nice blanket and keeps it warm all night. So put it out in the open, put somewhere where the wind can get at it, and that will really help it chill down a lot faster. You're talking about when you're when you're cooling it. When you're cooling, yeah. And that's kind of what we'll say a, a newbie mistake we see made a lot. Usually make it once, but it's going to be one sleepless night waiting for the temperature to drop, and it just won't. So get it out, get it into the open. You know what I mean? There's a little question about whether you should keep the lid on or not. Um, If you keep it off, you're going to get a lot more evaporation. You're going to get a lot more chilling as well because all the heat's going to want to escape out the top. At the same time, you got to be worried about infection and keeping, you know, that nice wart kind of open for microbes. I'm not as worried about it in the winter uh, as long as we don't have tons of wind or nobody's operating like a snowblower nearby. Mm -hmm. So as long as you're not throwing particulates into the air for any reason, I think it's okay to leave the top open. It's going to save you a lot of time. Okay. So a couple of tips that we should have gave you last week. All right. So on to uh, the meat of our main topic uh, today, clarifying beer. How do you clear up a cloudy beer if... if, um I mean, if that's what you're going for. I mean, plenty of beers you want to be cloudy, and you kind of like mm-hmm. that. But uh, to clarify your beer, there are shortcuts, and then there are more efficient. Like, how many different ways are there to do it? There's a, a couple of different ways. Um, and sometimes, you know, a cloudy beer will clean up with time. But the time doesn't always fit our schedule, or sometimes it just won't happen. Um, and this is a problem that a lot of home brewers see, um, partially because while we know probably patience is the greatest virtue in this hobby, we don't always have it. Um, and the first thing I want to talk about is nephilometry versus turbidity. Um, so nephilometry is really a measure of the color. Now, things like sugar crystals, you know, tannins, stuff, and stuff that's really 
um, soluble in the water is going to affect your nephilometry or your color. And what's happening is the light is still getting through, but it's getting refracted and bent in a way that changes the color. So anybody who's had a stout or, say, you know, a really you know, deep red ale knows that if you put a flashlight to the back of it, even in a big car buoy, once it's cleared, once it's lost all of its solids, you'll still be able to see that flashlight through the um, fermenter. Um, turbidity, though, is kind of a measurement of the solids uh, inside. So if nephilometry is how much the light is being bent, you can look at turbidity as how much it's being stopped. So how much you know, physical stuff is suspended in there, stuff that's not soluble, and making it cloudy. Now, there are few things we can kind of look at as far as what's going to make the beer cloudy. And, and the two that we really look at all the time are yeast and protein. Yeast is probably the most common. You know, what happens is fermentation has come to a completion, and yet for some reason the yeast jo just won't flocculate. Uh, the protein often causes a little bit more problems because sometimes you don't see it until you chill the beer down, thus chill haze. Um, what happens is these proteins were in an okay state, and now as you chill it down, they start bonding to each other and form bigger groups, and now you can see them as haze in your beer. Um, so I guess the first thing we want to talk about is, one, how to prevent haze in your beer. And let's talk about the yeast first. Um, now, a lot of times, it comes down to temperature management. Um, the yeast don't want to flocculate until they've seen the available sugar uh, resources drop. Um, so if you still have sugar in the beer and you say you get a little bit of a cold spell, not enough to force them to the bottom, but enough to stop the fermentation, oftentimes the yeast will linger inside the beer and you'll see it. It'll be cloudy. There'll be no more action on top. And if you take a hydrometer reading, a lot of times you'll notice that there's still sugar to be done. So actually against the common kind of belief, um, you want to warm the beer back up to help it finish the fermentation, and begin flocculation. At the same time, if you know that the yeast is definitely done fermenting, you can drop the temperature on it, or cold crash, to kind of start the beer, kind of clarifying, start the flocculation a little bit sooner. Now, you also can prevent this kind of problem. If you're hitting your right temperatures, you're still getting a little bit of problems with kind of, you know, late flocculation out of the yeast. You may want to start adding calcium carbonate to your batches. Now, the yeast use the calcium carbonate uh, to kind of aid them in flocculation, and if they don't have enough, it takes them a while. Um, and again, you're waiting for these yeasts to clump together. When we talk about flocculation, they begin to get a little bit denser. They begin to um, get a little heavier compared to the water, and they're going to fall right through. So first thing, it's a little bit of prevention. If you're having this problem routinely, start looking at calcium carbonate. But a lot of times, if you see it later on in fermentation, check your gravity, check your temperature, but that's usually where the problem's going to be. Mm -hmm. All right, now proteins, again, we usually don't see these until the end, and until we're chilling down the beer, until you're putting into a kegerator, until you take a bottle and you put it into the fridge. So sadly, if you're in bottles, by the time you realize that you have a chill haze, there's not a lot you can do about it. Now, if you realize that you have a chill haze in the carbuoy or keg, you can add gelatin. Now, gelatin can help, you know, yeast flocculate faster, kind of force it into it, and it's another, you know, static ionic uh, clarifier. Um, but it, it's 
going to be a problem if you're in bottles. You can't justify opening up every bottle, pouring it back into a bottling bucket, clarifying it, recarbonating it. Um, it's just not going to be worth it. Um, but in a keg, if you catch it in a carbuoy, again, you just simply add gelatin, give it two to three days, and it's going to drop out a lot of that protein. If the gelatin won't do it, there's a couple other, you know, clarifiers you can try. Um, Isinglass uh, is very traditional, especially in English cask ales. Uh, Dual Fine is a relatively new product, usually referred to as super clear, and that really will get rid of just about anything. Now, Anytime you use a clarifier, anytime you curl crash your beer for an extended period of time, you may want to think about adding a yeast to kind of make sure it bottle conditions for you. Because a lot of time, if we strip all this yeast out of there, um, there's still some left to do the bottling condition, but it's really a question of how long. If you have only a few yeast, it will take a while, and you may get some diacetyl, you may get some phenols in there because of them boosting their numbers to eat the uh, glucose from bottling. Now, the prevention from po protein haze is really quite easy. Or, or as far as me telling you what to do, it's quite easy. And the first thing is a protein rest. Now, if you have a cooler, this can be a problem. So what you're trying to do is hit a first mash temperature at about 120. And what this is going to do is fix your pH and make it a little easier for the proteins to coagulate as well as the mash to convert. So if you can, do a protein rest, about 122 degrees for only about 15 minutes. Again, if you have a louder ton, this is easy. If you have a cooler, you do have to try to pull some of the mash, maybe do a decoction, maybe do a rim system and kind of run hot water through your wart chiller to help bring the mash up. But you want to do a protein rest in the mash and then add Irish moss or whirl flock to the boil. It can be just that simple. What that's going to do is, again, coagulate proteins in the boil. You'll see them in these nice little bits of what we call trub, you know, flotsam and jetsam and coagulated bits. It almost looks like a little bit of tofu and then very similar, you know, chemically, floating around your boil. And so if you can get them out ahead of time, and again, if you're seeing these problems routinely, start doing a protein rest, start adding Irish moss for every beer that you don't want to be cloudy. But yeah, so it's simple as far as... And that seems like do. by far the easiest thing to do. Like it's just a yeah. little, it's like taking a pill. <laughs> you got it. And now I'm going to talk about filtering. Okay. Because I don't necessarily want to encourage it. Not because ethically have any have anything against it. I've, I've I've tried it many times myself, but it's never as simple or as cheap as everybody wants it to be. So we already gave you the simple and cheap answer. If you want to make it more complicated, here we go. So if you're going to want to do filtering, you're going to need a kegging system because you're going to be able to transfer the beer through the filter, and you're going to need back pressure to do that. A pump or something like that is really just going to provide too much agitation, uh, as well as really not enough constant back pressure uh, to kind of push it through the media. Um, it's kind of tough to find a good filter. The most common is to use, like a, I think it's an 8 or 12-inch uh, water filter cartridge. Um, the problems are the cartridges are expensive, so you're adding anywhere from a cost of $3, you know, up to 15 per batch, uh, especially if you don't take care of the filter cartridges. And then you spend a lot of time both sanitizing the cartridges before you start filtering. You spend a lot of time watching the beer slowly trickle over, and then you have to clean the cartridge out afterwards if you expect to reuse it. Um, good cartridges for that are reusable, say like um, a porous ceramic, or stainless, it really run up into, we'll say, you know, $35 plus 
if you're looking for just a you know, simple carbon filter or a pleated filter, those are fairly cheap, but are going to be a lot harder to clean and reuse. So filtering on a homebrew level is just really not time or financially uh, worthwhile. Um, you can take about, you know, 15 to 20 cents worth of gelatin, you wait two days, and you're going to get a really similar effect. Yes, you didn't take out the yeast. Yes, you didn't take out some of the finest elements of it, but you're not going to notice. If you hold that beer up to the light and it seems perfectly clear, you're not going to say, oh, well, there's, you know, still less than 0.02% solids in this. Mm -hmm. No, it's a clear beer. You're going to be really happy with it. Um, the filtering, um, only advantage to filtering is you have the beer clear that night so the only time that i really could say it was useful is when i had a beer in secondary and i wanted to bring it someplace that night so if it was cloudy i could quickly filter it use a kegging system um, to carbonate it but if i had 48 hours of kind of forethought that process would have been a lot easier mm -hmm. let's get a break in back on the other side we're talking about clarifying you your beer don't go anywhere ESPN 1520, our on-demand portion of the Audio Vault. Uh, of course, any episode you want to hear, you can go back in time and listen to those. Niagara Traditions, just for what continues next. Jeremy White here for Niagara Tradition Home Brewing Supplies. You're listening to Just Brew It, which means either you homebrew or you're thinking about it. Wherever you are in the process, Niagara Tradition Homebrew is your source for everything homebrewing. Do what I did. Get a starter kit, and you'll be well on your way. Niagara Tradition will be there to answer your questions, give you advice, and as I try to become a more seasoned brewer, I know I can count on Niagara Tradition to be there with the supplies and the advice I need. Niagara Tradition Home Brewing Supply. 1296 Sheridan Drive, near Military, in Tonawanda. Open Monday through Friday, 11 to 7, Saturdays, 10 to 4, and 24-7 at nthomebrew.com. Niagara Tradition Homebrew. Pay them a visit, and remember to just brew it. All right, back here on Niagara Traditions Just Brew It on ESPN 1520. Clarifying your beer, we've talked a lot of things from yeast to protein, how to prevent haze, how to get rid of it, and uh, the next step in the conversation is regarding secondary fermentation. Yes, because, I mean, a lot of, I guess, the reason I wanted to talk about this is we got a, little, a lot of questions this time of year about secondary fermentation. You got a lot of new brewers. They started with a basic startup kit. It didn't come with the carbuy. They've made a couple of beers. They've started reading through, you know, Charlie Papazian's uh, New Complete Joy of Homebrewing. I think it's in its fifth edition. Still a great resource. And now they're wondering if they should be doing secondary fermentations. And... Um, First thing, secondary fermentation, there's no fermentation going on. You're not going to see croys and you're not going to see lots of CO2 production. While the yeast are still kind of fermenting, you know, eat, uh, consuming diacetyl, acetylaldehyde, and maybe, you know, eating through some final sugars, there's no going to be fermentation action. Um, to do a secondary, you want to get a carbuy. I really prefer a narrow-necked carbuy. can be plastic or glass, the same volume as the batch. So if you have a 5-gallon batch of beer, you want a 5-gallon carbuy. And if really you look at standard batch sizes for home beer and winemaking, uh, it kind of follows the availability of carbuy sizes. And the reason why you want it filled to a narrow neck carbuy is you want to limit the surface area. And so if you have it in a bucket, you say have a surface area of like a square foot and a half. If you have a carbuy, 
you have maybe a square two inches, three inches in the neck of the car buoy. And that's a lot less surface area for oxygen exchange. So basically, by doing a secondary fermentation, you're providing a safe storage vessel for your beer to try to accomplish another goal. So I guess the question is, do you need to do a secondary? Not all beers require or will really benefit from a secondary. In fact, a lot will kind of lose some of those, you know, fresh flavors you may have been looking for. I'm thinking of English bitters, uh, German Hefeweizens, uh, Polish Grodiskis. Like, all of these beers really benefit from a quick fermentation, quick clarification, get them into bottles or kegs, and start enjoying them. You want to kind of get to them before the yeast can go back eat through some of those other flavors, or some of them can just break down. So some beers are actually going to like lose points if you're, say, entering them in a competition if they sat in a secondary for a little bit too long. There are some benefits of doing a secondary. You're going to have less sediment in the bottles. You're going to give a chance for the yeast to flocculate, a little bit more trub to fall down, um, and a chance to maybe air a add a clarifier and let it sit for a little bit so you end up with less sediment in the bottle. You're going to have a cleaner overall beer if you want a cleaner overall beer. So you're going to have less green flavors. Again, we're looking at diacetyl and acetaldehyde. And again, it's a good opportunity to add clarifiers or any other you know spices, hops. Say if you do a fermentation, you really want to do a controlled time on your dry hops, say 7 to 10 days. But you don't have the ability to do that in the primary fermenter. Because you want to let the fermentation finish because it's a really big beer. Now you're worried about infection, oxidation. Great excuse to do a secondary. Um, and it's really any time you want to bulk age the beer for more than a few weeks. Like Carboy is going to prevent that oxidation. So you really have to ask, do I need a secondary fermentation? Really big IPAs, um, barley wines, Russian imperial stouts, and beers like those. I would say require a secondary. You know, a lot of my beers, Irish red ales, Irish stouts, um, thinking of what I've been brewing recently, um, don't. You know, if German alt Keller beer, I don't see the reason. Um, and so you're giving yourself, by doing the secondary if you don't need it, not only it's a chance to lose flavors that you may want to keep, but it's also another chance to get an infection. So if you don't need it, don't do it. If it looks like a recipe is going to be- benefit from that, you know, get out there, get a five-gallon carbuy. Wood, as much as I love my Fermonster, I don't use it for a true secondary fermentation. Again, get a narrow neck carbuy um, and do a secondary. Now, one more note I have on here is using a keg as a secondary fermentation. Um, I do it. Um, Yes, you have more surface area, but you're able to flush out that surface area with CO2. The only disadvantage to doing a secondary fermentation in the keg is you're going to have all that sediment in the bottom of the keg. So you may want to think about some bit of mitigation. The simplest way is to install a racking tube tip on the dip tube for your keg or to cut the dip tube a little bit short. Once you've finished your secondary, you'll use CO2 pressure to simply force that beer over to another clean keg or try to gently drink it and not move it around and finish it out of that same keg. You're going to be okay doing that. You wouldn't worry about italysis with a little bit of sediment of yeast that's going to be in the bottom of there over the time in the kegerator, especially because you're sitting at 36 or 38 degrees. So keg is a 
okay vessel to do a secondary fermentation. Carbuy is always better. You can check on it. Um, it's easier to get the clear beer off the top by racking it, but you can use your Cornelius kegs. But the important thing is that there's no oxygen sitting in the headspace. So if you do have a big surface area, flush it out with CO2. Um, or better yet, go for a carbuy, go for that small surface area, and you should be okay. All right. Just a few minutes left here. Um, I wanted to ask you something maybe to plan a show for the future about barley wine. I don't think we've ever, ever talked about it, really. No, it's a style. It's, it's um, a nice beer. It, it's really, I would say, one that was really popular with initial home brewers, and it's a great beer to bottle and put into the cellar. So it's really high alcohol. It really matures well with time. Um, and so if you're looking for something to age, if you're trying to brew something because you have a full kegerator and you want something to put away for a while, barley wine is a great beer for that. Now, yeah, like I have a barley wine because I ordered a bunch of stouts and a barley wine came through. And I, I'm sure I've had one before. Is it a style that is, I don't know, forgotten, that is just kind of not forgotten, but underrated, underappreciated, underproduced, any of those things? I, it, maybe all of them, maybe none of them. There's definitely a lot of fanatics out there um, for barley wines. And, and I definitely. Is it a cult following type yeah, of it, style? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, between beer aficionados, it's a great like Christmas gift because um, somebody got me a barley wine a couple of years ago and we were able to enjoy it while they were over you know, a couple of nights ago. Mm -hmm. And I had done it a benefit to let it sit in the basement for three years. Um, And so if you're looking for, you know, it's kind of like the fruitcake or Christmas cookies of candy, it's going to last a really long time, except people actually want to consume it, Um, unlike the fruitcake. So the barley wine's great for aging. Um, If you want to talk about, like, any, like, single unifier, it's really that they're high alcohol. I've seen dry hop barley wines, um, wood aged, spiced. Um, but the one common factor is that they're all up there, at least over 8%. Um, and kind of, if, if you say they've fallen out of favor, I would say no, because you see craft brewers really kind of pushing the envelope with them. And again, the wood aging, um, fortifying, and really getting them like up over 10% is definitely something that you're seeing a little more recently. But why you don't see more of them? They have to sit around for forever. They got to ferment for forever. They have to condition for a while, um, and then you still want to kind of let them sit around in bottles before you turn them over to the public. And those kinds of you know agings makes the beer a lot more expensive. There's a lot more kind of brokering, kind of like you see with wine going on for a bottle of barley wine over a bottle of IPA or something where you're just trying to get it through the works and out to the customer as fresh as possible. All right. Well, maybe a bigger, longer show on that sometime in the future. Maybe next week. I think I see you. Maybe soon. All right, that does it for us. If you uh, joined us late or at any point want to, uh, you know, be a a part of all that we talk about, our website, ESPN 1520 On Demand. Find any episode. And, again, Uniha, uh, April 26th is the deadline. So, Or is it 28th? What what do we say? 26th. 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 There you go. 26th. So not enough time for barley wine. But if we've inspired you to get out there, skip the secondary, and get a beer in in four weeks, you better go brew yourself. Beer, 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 beer. 
You've been listening to Just Brew It, brought to you by Niagara Tradition Home Brew. Whether you're a seasoned brewer or just want to get started, visit them at 1296 Sheridan Drive in Tonawanda or online at nthomebrew.com. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Just Brew It.